can turn in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 18. John chapter 18 is where we're going to continue on as we look at this section of John, which is including and totally made up of his passion, the passion that we see him pour out for the sacrifice of sins in our place. And if you're able, in honor of God's word, please stand so we can read our text this morning. Starting in verse 28, we'll go through verse 38, the first half of that verse. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? You may be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, as we look to open up this text, we ask that you would supernaturally, divinely do that. We can't. We, we cannot make this open to us. We cannot make it poured down deeply into our souls, but your spirit can. And your spirit is here. We know that, that he's indwelled all who have called upon your name in repentance and faith. So we ask that you would do that. You would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. May we see here what you've clearly intended for us. Lord, we are a people who need the truth. We are a people bombarded with lies, with, with twisted versions of semi-truths. So we ask that we would see the truth, that we would come away with a grasp for the importance of the truth, that our dire need for it and the world's dire need for the truth. May it come across clearly this morning, and may the preacher not get in the way of your intents this morning with this text and these ten verses. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So John 18, where we pick up, we are now talking to Pilate, as you can see, that we've read that he, Jesus is now in front of Pilate. Now, this begins what we call his Roman trial. So there's three phases to Jesus' Roman trial. The first time he's before Pilate, which is the text that we just read. Then he goes to being before Herod, which only Luke records. Nobody else does. Then he has a second appearance before Pilate in John 18, 39 through 19, 16. What we're looking at right now is his first appearance before Pilate. And as you can see where our text ended in verses 37 and 38, the big crescendo of Jesus' first trial before Pilate is the truth, the concept of the truth. Now we have to ask ourselves before we get into the text, does the truth matter? See, we live in a relativistic postmodernism. If you don't know what that means, relativistic means that the truth is relative. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. What's true here may not be true there, and what's true there may not be true here. It's all relative. Postmodernism says that you can't even know the truth. But where we are, actually, postmodernism was about 15 years ago. We're probably post-postmodern. We're actually what some Christian 
theologians say we're not postmodern, we're post-truth. We exist beyond the truth today. I mean, think about this. We have a lifetime appointee to our judicial, a lifetime ruler in our judicial branch doesn't know what a woman is. She does know, but she's lying about knowing, and everybody's okay with it on national TV in front of Congress. We are post-truth. Without propositional objective truth, what do we have? What are we left with? We're left with chaos. If everything is true, then nothing is true. If, if up is down and down is up, if the sky is red and blue simultaneously, then we have chaos. If there is no propositional objective truth, we have a world void of it. So with that concept, we're going to look at Jesus outlining all of this and how it all comes about. What we're going to see here is really the collision of two kingdoms over the ground of the truth. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Jesus is going to speak about his kingdom, and his kingdom is marked by the truth. But we're going to see this collision happen in time and in space here. Look at verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So let's look at location number one. You see Jesus is led from the house of Caiaphas. And if you've been keeping up with us for the past couple of weeks, we were a little bit disjointed in how we went through the, those preceding texts of his trial at Annas' house because then he goes to Caiaphas' house both are high priests. Caiaphas is technically the high priest. Annas is the high priest recognized by the Jews. And they have a house. They're related, father-in-law, son-in-law. Their house is connected by a courtyard. So being in Annas' house and Caiaphas' house is kind of the same thing. So they've left there, taken Jesus there early in the morning. Now, this early in the morning is actually early in the morning. It's not uncommon in the ancient world for the day to begin before the sun comes up and then for the Romans to quit their work by 10 or 11 in the morning. So this is happening early. This is dawn time. And John doesn't record for us Jesus' trial in front of the full Sanhedrin and Caiaphas. The other three Gospels do, but John doesn't. He's going straight to Pilate. He wants to get to that part of it. So he comes to Pilate's Praetorium. Maybe your translation says Praetorium. It says Governor's Headquarters in the ESV. Now, this is a place, think of it as a palace-slash-military garrison that he comes to in Jerusalem. He normally stays elsewhere in Caesarea because he's the governor over the, the district of Israel, the Palestine era or area. But he's in Jerusalem for a particular reason. He's there with full force, with full military, because what's going on in Jerusalem at this time? The Passover. And so if you're going to let the people still worship their gods as a Roman Empire, then when they all gather together according to their religious calendar, you need to be there just in case a riot breaks out or the Roman Empire happens. So that's why Pilate's there in town. There's two places that people debate, scholars debate on where it actually was. We don't need to necessarily nail that down. We just need to know that he was there, there was a palace, and that's where he's brought. Jesus is brought. This palace slash military force. But do we notice the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in verse 28? They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Do, have we seen them care for at all for justice? This whole process, they have no concern for justice, no concern for a fair trial that's innocent until proven guilty, no concern for the legal requirements of what makes an actual authentic trial. But now they're concerned with their personal cleanliness, with their ritual cleanliness. The Jews, they become unclean by incidents, and this is not in the Old Testament. We know that this happens because we look at Acts 28, or Acts 10, 28, rather. He, he, Peter, said to them, the crowd, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person a common or unclean. Peter's seeing this saying, you guys all know that if we go in their house, we will be unclean. A lot of reasons why for speculation. One of the big ones that they think why these Pharisees seem to care is because when the Romans did not want a child, 
they would just have that baby killed and they just throw the baby body down the drain in their house. So if you go in the house, then you've been around or touched or something that a dead body has. So you don't want to do that. So it's kind of superstition. But this is not a, an Old Testament edict that you can't go in a Gentile's house. This is just the commentary, the Talmud, the commentary on the Old Testament about what you can and can't do. They're very concerned with that. But why the sudden change? You have no concern for the Talmud's uh, understanding of what a fair trial is and when you can have a trial, who can be there, how the witnesses are supposed to be questioned, and those kinds of things. You don't care about that, but you care about this? Why the change? Well, what's going on here in this collision of kingdoms? Look at Matthew 25, 5-7. We'll see where their religious fastidiousness comes from. Fastidiousness, kids, ask your parents what that word means when you get home. It's a big one. Matthew 25, 5-7, Jesus is saying, They, the Pharisees, the Jews, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. You know what that means? The phylactery was a little box that you would put scripture inside of, written on small pieces of paper, and you'd wear it on your forehead. And if you were serious, you'd make it huge so everybody can see you coming. And your fringes long, what does that mean? You're supposed to have, according to the Old Testament, the priests were supposed to have blue cords that came down on the right and left and the front and back of them. So they're covered, in a sense, all around by the presence of God. I'm thinking of that all the time. But if you wore a coat over it, or you it's cold or whatever, then people couldn't see your cords. So you make them real long, so everybody knows how holy you are. You don't care necessarily what God thinks at all. You just care about what people think. They love, verse 6, the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. And Jesus gives this warning, beware, in Matthew 6, 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. See, legalists keep the laws that suit them and their agendas. They're not concerned with about pleasing God at all. That's why, the, that's why you can see this juxtaposition in the Pharisees. You don't care about God's perspective or the holiness of this trial you're trying to conduct. But now you suddenly care about your ritual cleanliness. All of a sudden, Jesus spoke to this in Matthew 23 as well, in verses 23 through 24. Woe to you. Now, woe to you is just not like, oh, you know, this is bad and silly. Woe to you means condemnation be upon your head. Like hell to you is what he's saying. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, Jesus, exclamation point, yelling. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Jesus is saying, woe to you. You guys will take your spices and get your card out and, and siphon off 10% of your mint and of your dill and of your cumin. But you don't care a rip about justice or mercy or righteousness. And then he gives an illustration that you can't get out of your mind in verse 24. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Kids, if you've ever been in a picnic, have you ever gotten a bug in your drink or your food? Has it ever happened to you? And what happens when the hat, you get the spoon and you try to scoop it out of the tea and you're trying to get it all the way out? Or, or you just pour it all the way out and get a new cup? Or if it's on your food, you kind of just scrape it off and if you're a boy, you just go ahead and eat it. If you're a girl, you demand an entire new hamburger. But you deal with the bug, right? Now, what if you saw somebody at a picnic doing this? They have a cup with a tiny little gnat in it, a tiny little fly in it, and then you saw their hamburger. They had a camel sitting on it. And they do all this work. They work for an hour to scoop with a little spork out the bug out of the cup, but then they pick up the hamburger with the whole camel on it and just eat it. Would you think that person is insane? That's what Jesus is saying. You're fighting over this little gnat, and then you just swallow this just dirty, disgusting, dust-ridden camel. That's what these Pharisees are doing. That's what we see modeled here, which is why John points it out. They won't even go in. They're just going to throw Jesus in. We don't care about his cleanliness, but we're just going to yell from outside the door so that we don't get defiled. 
What's ironic is, and this is how one commentator, he described it, he said the Jews take elaborate precautions to avoid ritual contamination in order to eat the Passover. <clears throat> At the very time, they are busy manipulating the judicial system to secure the death of him who alone is the true Passover. The irony is rich, and John's always pointing out irony. In verse 29, the story moves on. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? So Pilate comes out to them. Now, if you think about this, you're Pilate. You have the whole army. Why are you letting these Jews yell at you from the door? And then you're going to come out to them. A little bit of history about Pilate. Pilate's kind of a, a weak man with a lot of power. He's a, he has a, a very fragile ego. He's done some things in Jerusalem since moving there. Like he brought in these statues of of Roman past Roman emperors and, and goddesses and gods and the people revolted against it and so he had to acquiesce and he took them out and then they had he did another thing where he he sold he used all the gold out of the temple to pay for an aqueduct and so they had essentially they had a sit-in the Jews had a sit-in around his temple and they said he I'm gonna come and kill you and you know what the Jews did they laid down on their backs and opened up their necks and said come kill us and they called his bluff and he backed down. And then another time they had, they had a little skirmish and he did go and send soldiers and they killed some people and it went even worse for him. So he's pretty much a terrible ruler and he's kind of afraid of these people and he doesn't want to lose his job with Rome. So when they come out, you see a bit of a tug of war happening. He's gonna go ahead and appease them and come to the door because he doesn't want these leaders to start a riot up, but he also doesn't really want to help them at all. So he comes out to them, trying to keep the peace in the region, and he cuts straight to the chase. What accusation do you bring against this man? I only need to be bothered by serious crimes. What's the deal? What, why are you bringing him to me? He's only concerned with the interests of Rome. And Jesus, he better be some kind of threat to the empire. If you're going to bring him all the way to me to deal with this, this isn't traffic court. It's better be something serious. So what are the charges? And he's just following Roman law. There was a Roman prior to him, Valerius Publicola, who made a Roman law saying that no man shall be condemned unheard. It's got to be heard. So Jesus, he says, what's this guy's deal? They answer him, verse 30. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Does that sound like a dodge? Hey, just trust us. He's a bad guy. Now, I had to know. Pilate had to be tipped off a little bit because what happened the night before? A big old Roman garrison of 600 soldiers marches from out of Jerusalem down the valley up the other side to the Mount of Olives. He had to know about that. So they're just saying, hey, this has to do with last night. Don't worry about it. He's a bad guy. I mean, that's just like saying that doesn't sound like me when you're accused of something. Or why would I waste your time when somebody says, are you wasting my time? Just tell me the truth. They, they, they're not going to answer. They're not going to bring a real charge. Because they know they have no case. They have nothing and they know it. But they're dead set on executing. He has to die. This is a continuing in the vein of just a kangaroo court. We talked about that last week, kids. Kangaroo court. It's not real. They're hopping over judicial process. It's a mockery. They got to attempt to manipulate the bureaucrat. To, you got to be a part of this. We got to go through Pilate because if we go through us, there's probably enough followers and we could have a big fight on our hands and we don't want that. So verse 31, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. So he's like, that, that's, that, that's the best you got. Then y'all just deal with him. Huh. I, don't, I don't get involved judicially when things are just like, hey, he's a bad guy. I don't have time to mess with that. I'm only in town for a few more days, and then he's going back. Then the Jews said to them, they revealed their real reason. It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Pilate see-throughs the thinness, and now the truth comes back. We want to kill this guy, and we're not allowed to do that. Now, if you are the Roman Empire, think about this, and you're going to rule in the first century world. No internet, no cars, no nothing, no airplanes. How do you keep relative peace? You conquer a people. You don't have to kill all of them. You don't even have to kill most of them. Just come in and flex your muscles and have soldiers there, have a governor that's over that region, and then let them do what they were doing. Because you don't care about their religion. You don't care about their laws. As long as they pay their taxes 
and we can send it back to Rome, that's all we care about. So they let everybody do pretty much what they were doing before Rome got there. There's just a different police station down the street, and there's a different governor who kicked out the old guy. That's basically all that's happening. But one thing that you can't let them do is have the right of execution. Because then what are they going to do? They'll just start executing people according to their own laws of people who support Rome. So you can let them do traffic tickets. You can let them do bickering fights and judicial things like that. But you can't let them kill people according to law. Because then they could start rooting out all the people that would side with Rome. And they have a revolution on their hands in that region of the world. So they take away that power for them to be able to do the death penalty. So now they show their cards. We want to kill this guy. And you got to be a part of it because that's the way it is. They also want his sanction. They want him so that nobody can argue with them. Hey, and then they can, and then if people get mad at him, they go, oh, Pilate did it. This is all kinds of evil going around. In verse 32, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. What kind of death? Does that matter? When you think about the death, that he's prophesied to die. He said himself, John 12, 32 through 33, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was gonna die. Lifted up from the earth on a cross. In Matthew 20, 17 through 19, he's even more clear there. He says, and Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, that's the Romans, to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. See, in the Old Testament, the primary way of executing a capital crime, a capital criminal, was stoning. Other versions were burning alive or decapitation only the romans practiced crucifixion galatians 3 will pick up on it and say that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree this is the most ignominious death shameful embarrassing humiliating death so this judicial clown show is happening on purpose jesus must die in this way by these men it has to be this way See, these flimsy arguments before a flippant bureaucrat are all a part of the plan. It has to happen this way in order for redemptive history to, re to achieve its culmination. In order for us to be able to be born again. Jesus says in John 3, 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It has to be a cross. It has to be publicly visible. It has to be in the image of sin. When Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness in Numbers 21, what was it? There were snakes going all over the camp, biting people, and they were dying. What was their only way of salvation, their only way to live? Turn and look to what? A cross with a serpent on it. But the serpent's what's killing me. Yeah, look at Jesus, and you look at him on the cross. What's killing you? Your sin. And that's what he is a picture of on the cross. He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's the same way that the serpent was lifted up in the Old Testament. Therefore, Pilate has to be involved. So we have to see here in this verse, verse 32, the validity of the word. God's word never returns to him void. It always is success, successfully effectual. It always does what it's supposed to do. The details of Jesus' death were prophesied and thus had to happen. Redemptive history will follow the plan that God has laid out. It will. It must. God didn't paint himself into a corner and then have to figure out a way to get his people saved. This was always a part of the plan. This is always according to the wisdom of God. Let me read to you the wisdom of God, the truth of God, in Proverbs 8, 22 through 36. It's a little bit longer, but I want you to listen to this so we see it and then it embeds deep in our minds. <clears throat> Verse 22 says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. Possessed me, wisdom. The first of his acts of old. 
Ages ago, I, wisdom, was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth, where there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he established the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limit. So that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the lord but he who fails to find me injures himself all who hate me love death jesus is a part of the triune god of the universe the wisdom of god was there before he made anything the plan of this happening in this way with pilate and the pharisees and ad 33 and at the praetorium and up on the hill golgotha it was all a part of the wisdom of god none of this is just god scrambling to make it all work it was the plan from before the foundations of the earth so consider this before we move on to pilate real quick what's the greater miracle if you had to compare two kinds of miracles, what's the greater of these two? The momentarily suspending the laws of nature in one time and in one place for a singular event. That's fantastic. That's, that's the healing of the blind man. That's the making the, the lame walk. Or what about this kind of miracle? Directing every micro-movement in the universe for several millennia in order to ensure that one particular event take place in time and in space that has ramifications for eternity past and eternity present that has to be the far more mind-blowing miracle all of these things working for millennia to get to this point down to the detail of the kind of death he was going to die so Pilate inquires again verse 33 so Pilate enters at headquarters and again Again, and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? So he takes privacy. So the Jews are outside. They won't come in. So Pilate knows, I can walk inside with this prisoner and talk to him freely. So that's what he's doing with Jesus. He pulls him inside into the, into the praetorium. So the Jews can't hear. He's going to have a secluded conversation, and he just cuts straight to the chase. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, he's asking that because we know the other Gospels record that was one of the accusations that the Pharisees leveled against him. So after they make their pathetic, hey, he's a bad guy, just trust us, Pilate's like, come on, you got to give me more than that. Well, he says he's a king and he's a threat to Caesar and all that kind of stuff. They make up all these things. So Pilate has to ask him about that. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, is this question sincere? Is he just trying to evaluate Jesus's sanity? Does this guy really think that he's a king? Does he not see all these Roman soldiers and the coin of the emperor's face on it? Is he looking for something deeper? We can go round and round upon his motives, but whatever the reason is, this is exactly what God wanted Pilate to discuss with Jesus. Exactly. He's in the presence of the high king of heaven, and he knows it not. He is in the presence and speaking to the one who ordained every birth in Pilate's genealogy. Every father, every mother, going back to Adam, Jesus is the one that made it all happen to where you would get to this point and question me. He is speaking with the one who exalts and deposes kings. Jesus made you king. You're only ruler right now, Pilate, because of me. Daniel 2.21 says that God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. John 18, 34, Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do you say it, do, or did others say it to you about me? So Pilate was cutting to the chase. Now Jesus is cutting deeper to the chase and quicker to the chase. Who's asking, Pilate? 
You or them? Who wants to know? Because this is a big deal, because if he answers yes or no, there's problems, depending upon why he's asking, what the background is. If he just says yes, then now Pilate goes, this guy is a threat to Rome, and we got to deal with this, and he cuts out all the process that God intends. If he says no, then Jesus is a liar, because he is a king, and he is the king of the Jews. He's the king of the world. He's the king of everything. So he puts it back on Pilate very winsomely, wisely, but he also shows no pity for Pilate. God's put you in this governmental role. You have to decide and figure this out. You will answer to God for the ways that you carried out what he entrusted to you. This is a tricky thing that Jesus says back, but it's simple. Who's asking? Do you really want to know? Are you asking for you? Are you asking if I'm going to lead a revolt? Are you asking if those guys are right or not? What are you after, Pilate? Pilate's incensed in verse 35. Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over me. Over me, what have you done? He, Pilate's scoffing at what he perceives to be a religious dispute. A couple of Eastern gurus are mad at each other about teaching, and this guy is uneducated and more popular than those educated rich guys. So this is just a stupid, ridiculous squabble between religious gurus. I don't care about this. Am I a Jew? Do I know anything about this stuff? I don't care about this. He has nothing invested in any of this. He doesn't want to referee a slap fight. So he attempts to coerce a confession. They want to kill you. They're really mad. You must have done something. Just tell me what it is, and I'll tell you if it's bad enough for me to kill you or not. Just tell me. Just get down to it. They want to kill you. I'll tell you how bad it is. See, this is a tactic that Pilate's trying to use to play off Jesus' fear. But here's the problem with this tactic. Jesus isn't afraid. Anybody else in this moment would be doing everything they could to get out of this. You're in front of the governor uh, from Rome. He's got a hundred soldiers right there on the other side of the wall. If you step up, if you slip up, it's over for you. So anybody else would be bargaining. Okay, it was just a misunderstanding with these guys, and they got really mad at me, and I wasn't trying to do anything. I, I love Rome. I love this. I love. And Jesus is not here for any of that. He volunteered to be here. He intended to be here. This day has been coming since God said, let there be light. So he's not worried about it, and he's not playing off of Jesus's, or Jesus' fear. He's not coming in to account at all. He intends to be here. Pilate's plan can't work. So Jesus is going to answer the previous question in verse 36. So Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Isn't that the original question that Pilate asked? Are you the king of the Jews? And then he, he, now Jesus goes back to it and just says, he answers that one without even answering the whole, what have you done, anything like that, defending himself. He just talks about a kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. It answers this original question. I'm not the kind of king you're thinking of. See, Pilate, you're accustomed to kings that ride in with horses and armies and swords and weaponry and take over and kill and slaughter. I'm not that kind of king. I'm a different kind of king. My servants aren't fighting. If I was a king like you think of kings, then they would be fighting. This would be wartime, but it's not. We're not here for that. I'm under arrest. I'm facing execution. But don't misread this situation. I am a king. I do have a kingdom, Pilate. I'm a king that allowed the Jews to capture me. I'm a king that allows the lesser magistrate to interrogate me. That's you, Pilate, which we'll get into in the following passages later on next week. I'm a king with a supernatural kingdom that exists in the hearts of men. See, Pilate, you and Rome have nothing to fear right now. You have something to fear eternally. But right now, I'm no threat to you. Not at all. My kingdom exists in the hearts of men, in the hearts of women. See, for now, Jesus is no threat to the empire. He has no intention of setting up a temporal kingdom by temporal powers. I'm going to take over this area with my soldiers of flesh and blood people. His subjects are not going to rise up against Rome with swords, and they have no plans to dethrone the emperor in the way that Pilate's anticipating. He has an otherworldly kingdom. 
if this world, this time was the realm of Jesus' kingdom, then his loyal subjects would be fighting his enemies. This would be wartime, but it's not. Christ's kingdom is neither of nor from the world. Did you see that in verse 36? It's neither of, my kingdom is not of this world, and at the end of the verse, my kingdom is not from this world. It's not made up of anything that you can see. It's not of it, and it's not from it. It doesn't generate out of it. It doesn't collect anything in it. It's not of this world. Not recognized or populated by the world. This is why Jesus isn't fighting, to gain it or maintain it. This world, as it is right now, is not what Jesus is after. He's already been offered this. Matthew 4, on the mountain with Satan, Jesus says, or Satan says to Jesus, if you'll bow to me, I'll give you. You will be king of this whole world. And he said, no, I'd rather have a cross. I'm a different kind of king. Jesus isn't after this world, then neither should we be. He was and is content to let the kingdom of this world go, and so should we. His kingdom is coming once for all, and then there's going to be a fight. And then there's going to be servants, only we're going to be entirely irrelevant. We're going to be behind him on a white horse, and he's going to do it all. Now here we build to the end. Verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king, or you say rightly that I am a king, is the inference in the Greek. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate keys in and goes, ah, so you are a king. He says, yeah, I'm not going to deny that I'm a king. I just told those guys out there that want to kill me that I'm the son of God. So I'm not going to, I'm not afraid of them. I'm not afraid of you. I didn't deny their question. I'm not going to deny your question. But then he clarifies this question. What does your kingship entail if you are a king? And what does that mean? You talked about your kingdom, but what does this kingship entail? Why did the king descend? Why did the king put on flesh? Why did he come? What does Jesus say? For this purpose I was born, for this purpose I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. That's what he says. Marturio is the word to bear witness. Some of your Bibles might say testify, to testify to the truth. That's what it means, to testify, attest, affirm, confirm, to speak well of. Why was Jesus born? Why did he come into the world? He, he asks this. He answers this. Why did he come? To testify to the truth and to gather the people that are of that truth. That's what he came for. He did not come to heal the sick or feed the poor, though he did do those things. But that's not why he said he came. He didn't come to spread good vibes. He didn't come to tell everyone to chill out and that God loves them. He didn't come to say, I'm going to impress you with my miracles. He didn't come to redeem the culture. He didn't come to enforce morality through politics. He came to bear witness to the truth. That's out of his own mouth. Jesus chose right here to unmistakably state for all eternity the purpose as to why he came. To bear witness to the truth and to gather truth people. That's what he said he came to do, unquestionably clear. If this was Jesus' mission, then what are we doing? Are we doing this? Are we majoring on activities that Jesus did but didn't mention as part of his mission? At times we do that as the evangelical church in the West. We major on things that Jesus did in fact do, but that he didn't mention here in front of Pilate. This is why I came. This is the whole reason why I came. Are we doing those things? Because we will never have the resources, the power, or the wisdom of Jesus. So why are we trying to do those things that require that? What, did, what can we do as regular people indwelt by the Holy Spirit? We can testify to the truth. We can do that. All of us can do that. I don't have the powers of God to feed 5,000, actually 20,000 people with a handful of loaves and fish. So why am I trying to do that? 
I can testify to the truth. I can bear witness to the truth. Jesus says that he is the truth and that I'm in him when I'm born again. And then he gave us the truth. I can do this. You can do this. But we sing sometimes to major on the things that Jesus did not come to major on. Why don't we just do what Jesus said that he came to do? He has a supreme allegiance to the truth. The king's top priority. The king, capital K, the high king of heaven like we just sang, and be thou my vision. His top priority is the truth. And his enemy, his arch enemy, seeks to attack the truth. The first words recorded of Satan are what? Did God really say? Was that the truth? That's the first thing that he's ever said. Did God really say? And then Jesus pins it right on the nose in John 8, 44, talking to these same Pharisees who are now waiting outside the door while he's inside talking to Pilate. In John 8, 44, you, these men, Pharisee, you are of your father, the devil. That doesn't sound very winsome or kind or, I mean, ain't it going on. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And you're from him. There's no truth in you. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. If the enemy is a liar and the father of lies and Jesus is the truth, he says in John 14, 6, and then now he says his purpose was to come bear witness to the truth. That's the opposites. That's night and day. That's, that's, that's east and west. That's as far apart as you can get. And if we're servants of the king, then our top priority should be his top priority. His enemy should be our enemy if we're good servants of the king. So we need to stop fixating on this world and fighting for control of it because Jesus explicitly stated that that's not what his servants do. They don't fight. They testify to the truth. We need to be carrying out his mission, bearing witness, gathering truth people. That's the focus. Everything else is ancillary. We, we can do those things, but they're not the focus of what we do. Only the truth sets sinners free. Only the truth sanctifies saints. Only the truth glorifies God. What else is there to do? Nothing. And we live in a world that asks Pilate question, Pilate's question in verse 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? With a scoff, this is postmodern Pilate two millennia ago. He scoffs at Jesus' assertion of the truth as if that's a thing, that it exists. To him, all truth is relative in some sense. What's true for one is not true for all. He, he's at the peak of Roman philosophy, which is just building upon Greek philosophy, which eventually starts eating itself and arguing with itself, and it has nothing to offer. The end of philosophy is madness. There is no rhyme, there is no reason, there is no hope. And by this time in history, Pilate and then his elite class in the Roman Empire, they had just given up on the Roman gods. Ares, Mars, Jupiter, just renamed from Zeus, Venus, and all the like, from the Greeks. They'd given up on that. This is, this is nonsense. But hey, we're a little superstitious just in case there is one. We'll kind of keep a facade of this kind of pagan pantheon of deities. But a decline in religious commitment had taken a hold of people like Pilate in that more elite, educated class. It had given way to skepticism. Truth had fallen with the gods. And so now Pilate says, what is truth? It doesn't exist. Jesus must be some backwoods redneck to be so naive as to think that there is something like objective truth. Rome's greatest philosophers, they can't agree on the truth or its existence, but some blue-collar Jew says that he knows it enough to testify to it and to gather people to it. Ridiculous. So we see here, as we wrap up, the need for truth. One of my mentors in the ministry, Dr. Richard Caldwell, told me, Stuart, basically most of what pastoring is is just showing up every day and telling the truth. 
That's basically what it kind of comes down to, to show up every day and tell the truth. And the truth is not absent of love, kindness, grace, and mercy, because God is truth, and he also is mercy and justice. We, we see these things. But in our world, the fellow citizens that we live with every day, they are dying in condemnation for lack of a knowledge of the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2.10, Paul says in the middle of this sentence, we pick it up and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Who are those who are perishing? Who are those who will perish forever? Because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. What will save them? What will save those who are perishing? The truth. The truth will save them. We must be kind. We must be generous. We must be peaceful and loving. But without the truth, all of that is worthless. We've just risen to the level of customer service. We're nice to you, so you come back. That's no better than Chick-fil-A. God bless them. But we have to have the truth along with our kindness, generosity, peaceful, and loving hearts. We must pursue unity. Unity is an amazing thing. We should have unity. We should seek unity because it's been by one God, one baptism, one Lord, Ephesians 4 says. But we can't pursue unity at the expense of the truth because then we just make everybody perish, but we go arm in arm to perishing. We have to have the truth. Our world is asking with Pilate, what is truth? We live in an era of entire moral insanity. And it's made up real pretty in the media, but when you see flesh and blood people, our neighbors that walk through that, they are miserable and they are horrified and they are, are walking on pins and needles because there is no solid ground. Nothing is real. Nothing matters. And no, I can't trust anything. And I say I love it, but I'm actually terrified by it. We must tell them. Our church, every faithful church on the planet and throughout history, that's where the truth resides. We have to tell them. We have to invite them in. We have to go and talk to them. We must herald it. We must never compromise, dilute it, or edit it. The prophet Hosea, the God through the prophet Hosea, chapter 4, verse 6, said, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. What Knowledge of what? The truth. And Jesus himself is the truth, along with being the way and the life. Our king came to earth only armed with one weapon, the truth. He doesn't even walk around with the, with the hammer of his trade as a mason carpenter type. But the truth, the truth about what? About God, about man, about sin, about the redeemer, about holiness about repentance and faith, about, about life in the Christian church, about the days to come, about heaven to come. We also have no other weapon but the truth, and it is the only thing effective in driving back the darkness, is the truth. So we let the light of the truth shine like a city on a hill in a dark valley. You can see it. Everybody can see it. That's what Jesus said, be that city. That in the middle of the night, the lights are on and everybody knows how to get there. And what we are is a congregation of sinners. Sinners saved by grace, by the mercy of God, by faith in Christ alone, by the power of his blood, all for his glory. We have that truth. We live as a concurrent kingdom. So we live like a kingdom, but our gates are open. Come and hear the truth. Come and be set free by the truth. Because Jesus said that's the only thing that sets us free. And that's the thing that he came to do, to bear witness to the truth. And all who love the truth gather to him. That's what we do every Lord's Day. Father in heaven, as we continue to look at, at, uh, at your Son, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, 
as we see him continue in these negotiations, really these uh, false inquisitions, we just are, are taken aback that just hours before, this very same God-man was, was weeping and pleading in the garden so diligently and passionately that blood was squeezing through the tiny pores in his face. And yet here he is, that same God-man, telling the, the most powerful man in the country that has the authority of the most powerful army in the world that he came to bear witness to the truth. Unashamed. Undeterred. You see that courage? We know we don't have it. We know we don't have it on our own. But in Christ, we do have it. And you've placed us in him, all who believe and trust in him. You've placed us in him. So his obedience becomes our obedience. His righteousness becomes our righteousness, and thus his courage becomes our courage. Oh Lord, may we be walking in the footsteps of our elder brother, our eldest brother, our uncreated brother, Lord Jesus imitating him and may we in a day that hates the truth that hates the concept of the truth let alone not just the truth that we hold up the whole concept is is bigoted in our day to think that we know and nobody else does may we hold it forth boldly may our eyes never be dry when we look at our lost and unbelieving friends Give us great words, even if they're stammering words, to share the truth with them, that they might know, that they might be gathered as the people of the truth. And may we as a church never forsake this heralding call that we saw modeled in our Savior. May we always hold forth the truth. May we never be embarrassed of any portion, any corner, any, any crossed T or dotted I of the truth we love it all it is all good and it is all glorifying to you and it sets us free from everything and in every way may we love it and embrace it may we hold it forth may we declare it may we know it may we know it well enough to do those things may we be committed students of the word who love to hear your word preached who love to sit in the quiet to hear your word come off the page as your spirit gives us eyes to see. May we be people that love the truth. And may we examine, pull down, point out, identify all lies. May our kids know what they're being lied to about because we tell them. May our brothers and sisters know what they're being lied to about. We are being discipled by the devil, by glass screens everywhere we look. And may we know that and be aware of that. May we see the kingdoms clash and may we run at the foot of the cross that's always there for us. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for the mercy that you've poured out to us that you would accept such feeble worship that we've offered you today and every Sunday before. May we continue in faithfulness. May we increase and grow in faithfulness. May we love gathering around the truth. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.